from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 this morning. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there if you have them. Back into our study in the book of James. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's stop there. There's a lot on my heart in terms of the local church this morning, and even in particular our local assembly. This is a very sort of pointed word in in terms of our attitude and attitudes toward people who walk in off the streets to come into our fellowship, or people who've been here that maybe we've sort of thought, you know, they're not in my comfort zone. They might be more affluent than I am, and so I don't really want to get to know them, or they might not be where I'm at socially or otherwise, and so I'm going to keep myself from them. James chapter 2 is cutting through those kinds of thinking patterns. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be open to your Holy Spirit's work right now. God, we would want to otherwise believe that we in no way are biased towards people or that we in no way have been partial towards people, resisting some and drawing near to others. We would want to think that cliques are only something that happened in high school. But God, we know better, and we know that your word is going to do its work in our hearts, and Lord, that you're going to speak to us and draw us out of our comfort zones through the gospel. God, I pray that you would make us open and receptive to your truth. We want to do church in the way that you would have us do it, according to your book, according to your truth. We want to reflect love so that anyone that would come in to our fellowship would sense the love of Christ here. Lord, we thank you that you welcomed us into your fellowship, into the communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we were the poor and broken person that was stumbling along and you drew us into your love. And we can never say thank you enough for that. By your grace alone, we love you, God. Open our eyes now to the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as many of you know, I uh, had my friend here last week who who enjoyed Brian Goins, my old roommate. Yeah, he, he did a good job. My wife and I were able to go to the weekend to remember for part of the weekend. I'm here now, but I got to hear Brian um, several times uh, teaching and giving the gospel. I thought he did a great job over at the Hotel Marriott. But the Lord was sort of doing something in my wife's heart and my heart before we even went to the conference on the way. You say, well, what happened in that 15-minute drive, Jeff? I mean, what was so significant? Well, we actually stopped at McDonald's before we went to the conference, and Judy wanted a Coke. So I said, well, I'll give you that. I, I can serve you in that way. This is a marriage conference. Let's, I'll give you a drink. So, so we went in the drive-thru, 
And as we're sitting there in the drive-thru, I observed a couple walking and kind of strangely walking across Huffman over to the medical clinic across the street from McDonald's there. And the, the person, the, the guy, was out in front of the gal, and he was about seven feet in front of her, and he fell down. And I thought, oh, you know, that's always a bummer to watch someone fall down, either on the ice or something. And he kind of hurt his knee and got up. He had white pants. And I, saw, I was thinking, oh, that guy's knee is, you know, I'm hurting for you, you know. But better him than me. No, just kidding. But, so, but really what happened is, is he kept walking towards the clinic, and Judy could see him now, and I couldn't see, but she was filling me in on what was going on. She said, Jeff, he just fell down again. I went, uh-oh, this is more serious than just a slip. And he stayed down, and he was right in front of the clinic. And she's saying, listen, the people are coming out and gathering around him and trying to help him. And somebody's bringing a blanket out now and putting a blanket over him and to make him warm and comfortable. And we're saying, well, you know, the sirens are probably going to go just right over here because the, of the ambulances and fire trucks over there. So an ambulance comes and there's more care and, and more help going to this man. And it sort of served to me as an illustration of what the church should be like. There are people who are walking towards a place for help. Just like this man. This man needed help and he needed a safe place to go. And because this man had real needs that these nurses and doctors were observing, they were not concerned about his insurance card, whether or not he had Blue Cross and Blue Shield. They weren't concerned as to whether or not he could pay for their services. They just saw the need and met the need. And they gathered around as a team and said, hey, fetch me a blanket. We need to make this man comfortable. And get him help. Let's, let's call for some reinforcements and have the ambulance come to really surround this, this guy with care. And I think it serves as a good picture of what the church should be. We should be a place where people can come and find help. Should we not? A place of rescue. A place for safety. A place for help. A place where you can go and you, you, you can show up and not be carted at the door. You know, do you, do you have what it takes to fit in with us? You know, do you have, uh, you know, resources to benefit us? No, we don't need to see people in that way. We need to look to people's hearts and see their spiritual needs and make that the priority over everything else. And that was a lesson learned for me as I was meditating also upon James chapter 2. Because James chapter 2 is saying, in essence, that if you're saying that you hold in one hand the gospel... And you're going to hold in another hand a critical judgmental spirit over people. That is an incredible contradiction. It's actually impossible to do. You cannot be submitting to the lordship of Christ and judging people at the same time. It just doesn't happen. Look at verse 1. James says, My brothers, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ The Lord of glory. Let's stop there. This is the theme of a big section in James 2, talking about attitudes within the church. We're going to look at four different attitudes that make up a Jesus-based community. Four attitudes. The first one is focusing on Jesus. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus, so he knew him well growing up. But he knew him in one way as a half-brother... And he knew him in in another way as a believer. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that 
Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, appeared to James and then the apostles. And it just marks out one of Jesus' half-brothers because James, James was going to be a preeminent leader in the local church. Here he was, just his sort of kid brother growing up before, you know, critical James. He was with the crowd in John 7 saying, oh, Jesus, you know, if you're really the real thing and can do miracles, then why don't you go to the Feast of Tabernacles? Why don't you go to the, you know, the, the Ferrandi? Why don't, you, why don't you go to this place where there's going to be a crowd and show your stuff? Go to the, the fair, you know, the state fair or whatever and, and show, show off. That was James until he saw Jesus raised from the dead. And James became a dynamo for the faith and a leader in the church because he knew that Jesus was, look at these titles, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James's eyes were opened. And so he's saying, look, you can't, you can't be playing favorites in the church. You can't show partiality and hold on to this Jesus at the same time and say he is Lord. Lordship it, it suffocates snobbery. It levels it. The lordship of Christ is a hammer on being a snob. Just think about that. Because when you bow the knee to the lordship of Christ, you know what you're saying? You're saying, I'm checking all of my credentials at the door. When Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's saying, I am bowing my knee to Jesus. I'm saying, I'm denying myself. I'm taking on my cross. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to become a slave of Christ. The word slave is throughout the New Testament. It's the word doulos, and it's typically translated bond servant or willing servant. But really, at the, the root level of that term, you know what it means? Slave. And what we think of as a slave is, is what the Bible is saying a slave is. It's a person who could have a good master or a bad master, but it's up to the master to determine how your life is going to play out. And aren't you glad we have a great master who loves us? He doesn't promise us comfort and ease, but he is our master. That's what the word Lord or kurios means. Lord, master. He is the ruler of our lives. And so when we do church with other people and you have a focus on the lordship of Christ and you're meeting people, everything gets leveled and you see people as hearts and lives before him. No matter if they're stumbling in off the street or if they're coming in with a PhD, it doesn't matter. It's all about whether or not people are submitted to the lordship of Christ. The words here, uh, my brothers, could be generalized to brothers and sisters. James is giving a command here, and he says, show no partiality. The word partiality is a Hebraism. It's a phrase that was used in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible in the Psalms. And it was talking about not looking to the face. That's what the literal translation of showing partiality is. Not looking to the face. It's the idea that when you're sitting there, and it's not talking about the leadership. It's talking about the church, the, the group, the, the collected assembly, all of us. When we see someone walk in, we don't look at their external face to evaluate how we're going to treat them. That's what he's saying. We're not going to play favorites and say, oh, that's someone that's like me. So I'm going to gravitate towards them. And we're not going to say, oh, that person... They don't look like me or talk like me or walk. They're, they're in a different age 
you know, demographic. They're, they're in a different age group or level. And so I'm going to, to shrink back from them. That's what the Bible is saying not to do. We do not have that option to be partial towards other people. All are slaved and slaves and all are saved by grace. It's the old children's song, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. Revelation 14, put another way, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people are going to come in. If you turn over to Colossians 3, Paul put it this way, Colossians 3, verse 11, he says, Here, the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. And you've heard that, but if we were to take a half hour, which we're not this morning, and just think through those categories, those were major barriers. I mean, just think about Jesus ministering to the Samaritan woman. I mean, that was a major cultural ethnic barrier, and she was half Jewish. But because that bloodline had been messed with, as a Samaritan, for him to interact with her, if you look at that as a, in a superficial way, you say, that's just not something that should be. But when you have the gospel and you're dealing with people's hearts and you recognize that everybody's made under the image of God, those things don't matter anymore. You go, you go to Sunday school class and you go, oh, oh, the Scythian, the barbarian, the guy, he, he's different than me. I'm, I'm this sophisticated Greek and I'm going in to be taught by the barbarian. Or, oh, yeah, that, that uncircumcised Philistine, he's, he's teaching in class. Oh, I'm not going to go to that one. I mean, that, those barriers were dropped. That's what the gospel did. That's the, that's the radical nature of the story of the book of Acts, where, where Peter is seeing the sheet drop down, and, and, and God is calling him and saying, look, kill and eat. We, we need to break through these ethnic cultural barriers, and the gospel extends ourselves to all sorts of people. What a great opportunity it is to get to know people that aren't like you and me, right? I mean, what stories you can hear as you sit with the aged or what lessons you can learn as you minister to Carson and Brady, my twins. I mean, right? And this, this is great. You know, I mean, you can get to know all kinds of people um, from all kinds of backgrounds and enjoy each other in the gospel. Very important. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, we were all baptized into one spirit. We've all been dunked immersed in the same Holy Spirit. Leviticus 19.15 is where in the earliest stages of, of scriptural writing, you have the law saying for the children of Israel not to show partiality. It was prohibited. Why is it prohibited? Again, verse 1 says, show no partiality as you hold the faith. The faith here is talking about the gospel. The definite article in front of faith means the gospel. You can't say, okay, I am a soldier for Christ. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm, as Jude puts it, I'm contending for the faith. I'm guarding the truth. You can't say that you're part of that mission and be partial at the same time. It undoes church. People come in and you say, yeah, I believe in the gospel, but I'm not going to talk to you. I mean, that is a complete contradiction. And then James lays it on thicker, but saying the faith in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Look at that title, the Lord of glory. Think about that. 
Jesus, when he came on earth, he did come as, as a servant to all. He came as a person who did not have a place to lay his head. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. He came as sort of the pauper. But you know what? John chapter 1 says his glory was on display. John 1.14, he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Jesus' glory, it came out on the Mount of Transfiguration. It shined through in miracles. We tasted of his glory, they said, when he was here on earth. And in our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ has shown up in our lives, right? You've sensed the glory of God in your own life. You've felt that. And when you've tasted glory, if you're tasting glory, you can't be a bigot at the same time. You just can't. It's just a contradict. That's, that's verse one. It's a contradiction to sort of say, oh, I'm going to value it. You're a good looking person or you're not a good looking person. And so that's going to dictate how I treat you. The gospel undoes those things. It has to for it to be glorious for things to be powerful. The glory of God is a long-standing theme through scripture, Exodus chapter 30, the last book or chapter 40, the last chapter of the book of Exodus talks about how the glory of God was coming down in the tabernacle as the children of Israel were setting up the tabernacle to journey through the wilderness under Moses's leadership. And it says when the glory was there, Moses couldn't even enter in. 1 Kings 8.11 is the same phenomenon. When Solomon built the temple of God, the glorious, beautiful temple, the, the presence of God, the glory of God consumed that place and the priests could not even enter in. Ezekiel 128 shows the prophetic throne room of God, the vision of Ezekiel where you have thunderclaps and an electric laser show going on and angel wheels going all around and a rainbow around the throne. And the presence of God was there and the glory was there. What happened to Ezekiel? He fell like a dead man. Ezekiel 1, 28. Where's the glory now? It's in you. As individual temples of God, 1 Corinthians 6, it's in me. And the glory is on display in its fullness as we gather together as an assembly. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, 22 and 23 says, Christ is the head, we are his body and ligaments, and the glory of God is present. And you know what? Where the glory of God is present, as we're thinking about the glory of God, that absolutely consumes snobbery. It consumes it. You can't have a transcendent view of God where the air is thin and be judging people at the same time. Because Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not really Lord at all in our attitudes, right? And he's Lord over all. Well, first of all, we focus on Jesus. This is how you get this kind of community. And secondly, you fixate on hearts. You fixate on hearts. Just like I began with that man that was laid out. He had needs. He could have gotten really cold. Alaska's like that where people are pulled off into ditches or stranded in the snow. I even got stranded. I got stranded in my own driveway the other week. Straight in the car a few, few, few many times, all of a sudden I'm in the drift. And you know, there's just nothing you can do. You're just humbled by that. 
neighbors coming by with the chain, you know, pulling you out. Then my other neighbor helped me. He said, you know, the, the snow pile that they form in our cul-de-sac. He said he actually tried to take that on one time with his Durango. All of a sudden his Durango is doing this. I mean, we live in a dangerous place. We live in a place that can humble you really quickly. And I don't think people are nicer here in Alaska as much as they just get it. They get, if I don't help that person, that person could die, right? There are situations like that. You understand the needs. Down in the lower 48 in the suburbia of America, you go, man, I'm sorry for you that AAA is going to have to pick you up in 20 minutes. I'm not stopping. You'll be fine. Here's a cheese it I mean, whatever. But, but here, it's not that people are so much nicer. It's just, you get it. You, we understand you got to stop because someone could die. There could be a kid in that car. You do these things. It's a little bit more dramatic. Well, that's how it is in the kingdom of God. Your welcome or your rejection of somebody could determine someone's spiritual life. It could, it could determine whether or not they're receptive to the gospel or not. It matters how we respond to each other. It does. And that's what James is hitting on where he talks about the Lord of glory. Well, he gives a scenario here, beginning in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, let's stop there. We're talking about fixating on hearts. You have two different people that come into the assembly. You've got a person that comes in and he's got fine clothes. He's wearing gold rings on his fingers. Literally, it's, it's the person is gold-fingered. It's the idea that he had a, a piece of gold on every joint on his finger, on all of his fingers. He's showing off. He's showing that he came in in the Cadillac Escalade, right? I mean, he, he's driving the good car. He's got the Armani suit. He wants to be treated in in a special way. Or maybe he's even unaware of how opulent he looks or ostentatious he's presenting himself as. But he comes into the assembly in shining clothes. Literally, it's it's saying fine clothing, but this is shining clothes. It's lampia. It's the idea that his clothes are, are attractive and bright. Bright like an angelic brilliance from the book of Acts. Same word there. And then you have, by contrast, a poor man in shabby clothes. Shabby here means dirty clothes, smelly clothes. It's a person that's coming off the job, just working a job and saying, you know what, I want to I check out this assembly and see what these people are like. So it's a really far-reaching contrast. You have a person who's, you know, perhaps, you know, like a, a president of a company, and then you've got a day laborer coming into the same assembly. How beautiful is that in the kingdom of God though, right? That's exactly how we should want it. So we can interact with people of all kinds, coming from all backgrounds, all situations. But that's not the outcome in this situation. You have uh, people, a church that's not fixating on hearts. You've got, verse 2, it says, they come into your assembly. It was the Jewish synagogue um, was, was sort of the historical Um, name for worship in the Old Testament Jewish system. But now in the New Covenant, James is picking up on that term saying, when you gather together like a synagogue, when you gather together like this, you have a scenario where you have a rich and a poor man coming in. Before I move on to the next point, I want to, or the next verse and point, I just want to point out the idea that Jesus never focused on externals, external appearances. Did he? Did he ever? 
Did he ever compliment someone in the Bible? I was just trying to rack my brain. You know, I'm going to say this from the pulpit. Is somebody going to come to me and say, actually, Jesus did compliment that person for the way they were dressed? Do you know anywhere in Scripture where Jesus did that? Jesus always was focused on the heart. That's, that's the Jesus I read in Scripture. He's actually reaching out and ministering to people who were blind like Bartimaeus. He ministered to the harlot, the woman who came in to Simon's house, Simon the Pharisee's house, and began, she, she broke the alabaster of oil and began to, to wet his feet and, and, and worship him in that way and, and wiping his feet with her hair. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't distancing himself from the prostitute. In that passage in uh, Luke chapter 7, 37 through 47, it talks about that woman who was a woman of the city. He knew who she was. He knew, the sin, he knew what sin she was involved in. And he led her close to him. And, and she appropriately worshipped him in a way that was very, very intimate. And he was saying, listen, this is what it's supposed to be like. I'm supposed to be accepting all people. What a contrast. You have the Pharisee in the room who's condemning that act. And you have Jesus who's affirming that act. The Bible is not a chauvinistic book, by the way. I think some people, they say, well, you know, culturally things have changed and you kind of have to reinterpret things. Because this Bible's a little bit chauvinistic towards women. Really? Really? I don't, I don't get that from Jesus. And I don't get that from Paul either. I just have to go there. Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 45. He begins to condemn. Well, verse 44. He says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the gospel. You can also be wealthy and be in the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. Job in the Old Testament was filled with wealth and was a man of faith. Abraham would have been known as a wealthy, wealthy man. Nicodemus the Pharisee would have been someone of prominence and wealth who was a believer. It's not what my point is not to say that the poor have a greater advantage than the wealth, but it's that In God's kingdom, there's room for all kinds of people who are coming to the feet of Jesus as beggars in their hearts. Even David in the Old Testament, I just have to bring this out. I think many of you would think about this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 7, that he was not evaluated by external appearances. Man on the outside saw David as a little shepherd boy, but God looks at the heart. That's how we should look at people around us. Jesus, he had, a, had no place to lay his head. He never placed value on external uh, appearances himself. He never did that with others. He always placed value on the condition of the heart. Everyone in the kingdom of God that's saved is saved because of grace. Is that not true? 
Are you ever tempted to believe that you earned your way into God's favor just even a little bit? Do you know that is absolutely contrary to what the Bible tells us? The Bible says in Isaiah that our, our goodness is like filthy rags. Filthy rags. Heinous rags. Paul looked at his own pedigree in Philippians 3 and he said, you know, all that I've done is scubalon. It's refuse. It's dung. It's a steamy pile in the yard. That's, that's my credentials. And by grace alone, I am saved. That's the attitude we have to have on Sunday mornings. Is that your attitude when you come to church? When you come to gather as the synagogue on Sunday mornings? That you sort of, you check your credentials at the door. You, you check your, your sort of trophies at the door. You leave those home. And you come in as just a, a fellow, co-equal heir of Jesus Christ. Where you love people who are different than you are. The family of God, 1 Timothy 5 says that we're supposed to view each other as fathers, brothers, sisters, and mothers. And we have each other, and it's a special blessing to live amongst each other in that way. Jesus talked about the day laborer, the one who, who worked all day, and then the one who worked at the end of the day, and everybody was paid the same. And that became a big conflict, because someone was saying, man, how did that person get the same paycheck as I got? And I just, he only worked one hour, and I worked 12. That's how it is in the kingdom of God. Even when you come in late, like the thief on the cross... Today, this day, you shall be with me in paradise, in glory. That's what the gospel does for us. Well, let's look at the third attitude we need to have. The third attitude is finding ways to love. Finding ways to love. When somebody comes in and and they're new, we we need to be thinking aggressively, I want to find a way to make this person feel comfortable. And maybe it's, you know, just by greeting them, being transparent, offering something in your own life that's going on. Hey, can I tell you something that's going on that you could pray for me about? I mean, putting the ball in, in your court and taking the pressure off of them to welcome them and say, hey, you know, do you have any needs or is there anything we can uh, do for you this week or things going on in your life? Just opening the door that way in conversations is a creative way to love people. In James 2... In this scenario, the church failed the test. What did they say to the rich and the poor? It says, if you pay attention to the one that wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions? Let's stop there. So you have two people coming in, two visitors. They're seeking what's going on at church. Perhaps they're believers, but probably these are not believers. And to the rich person, an usher or a person sitting in in the seat says, hey, you know what? Why don't you sit in this prominent place, this this cushy seat? Back in the synagogue time, you would have had people sitting on the floor, Indian style. You would have had people um, perhaps in a few chairs around. And this wealthy person comes in, and because of the way that they look, the church responds and says, look, I want you to sit up front. It's such a pragmatic way to think. It's a worldly way to think. It's, it's thinking, you know, look, if this person is able to be part of our church and can give to our church, then our church is going to do greater things than we could ever imagine. If this person, because of his or her fame, gets saved, then that could draw all these other people to get saved. Do you ever 
do that in your mind, if that celebrity, if that sports hero, if he or she got saved, that would really create an incredible testimony effect across the world. It's not how James puts it. James is saying that this is wrong thinking. I think this is the thinking of James 1.27, which says that we are to have pure and undefiled religion, ministering to orphans and widows, and to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And I define the world as world thinking or world philosophy. It's the idea of how churches can go into a business mindset instead of a church mindset. Hey, we need to have target groups. We need to um, you know, create church growth by going after these kinds of people as opposed to those kinds of people. It's worldly thinking. And it creeps into the church. Later on, we're going to learn in James 2 that the rich were actually oppressing the poor. They were hurting the poor people. And I think that same attitude was creeping into the church. That injustice was something where the church was going, well, you know, the world kind of treats these people who come in, you know, and, and in a certain way. And so we're going to treat them that way, too. Does that sound like a safe place to come? The church should be the safest place in the world to come into and be a part of. It should be the easiest place on this planet to fit in, right? It should be the most welcoming. It's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. The church is the dearest place on earth. It should be a picture of heaven. It should be a picture of reception. I'm not going to go into this parable, but there's a parable I was meditating on in Matthew 22 that says the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. And it was where invitations were going out from the king to all the dignitaries in the land. And the dignitaries kind of blew off the invitations and went, well, we don't want to be a part of that. And so the king changed uh, things around. He said, okay, now I want you as servants to go out into the highways and byways and invite everybody to come to this feast. And those who were the needy and the poor, those who were the disrespected, those were the ones flooding into the wedding feast and the door shut. And in verse 14, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. Few come in. But the ones that do come in, we want to welcome them. We want to reflect the kingdom of God here as a church and say, come on in. We want you to be a part of our feast And Jesus actually, in that same parable and teaching in Matthew 22, was um, spoken of by the Pharisees as one who was never swayed by people's appearances. What a commendation. Matthew 22, 16, check it out later. He was never swayed by appearances. He just loved people. He loved hearts. He was fixated on hearts. And then as verse 3 puts it, we need to find ways to love. We don't need to be those who are saying, hey, you know, you sit in a good place because you've got money. You, you, look, you, you look the part. There are people in our society today that look like they have money and don't have money at all, right? I mean, we have all kinds of problems here, but we don't want to cater to that. We want to love everybody equally all around. One person translated this verse, paraphrasing, saying, hey, you sit here in the good place, and to you, the poor person, you stand over there in the back, and if you've got to sit down, just sit on the floor. That's the translation somebody put to this. Literally, in the original language, sit down at my feet means to sit underneath my feet as a footstool. Psalm 110 talks about how God is exalted in heaven, And in the end, the enemies are going to be made to be a footstool under his feet. 
It's that kind of attitude that creeps into the church where people start playing God and saying, hey, sit at my feet. I can judge you. When God alone is the only one who can judge the heart, right? It's the attitude we have to run from and we have to find ways to love. Jesus was no respecter of persons with his love and is no respecter of persons with his grace. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, and amen to that, right? Because you know what? You and I, we deserve to be the enemies that are under the Lord's feet. We deserve that footstool position. But by his grace, you know where we're seated? Already, spiritually, we're seated at God's right hand. We're on the throne with him in heaven as a co-equal heir, reigning with Christ. Our position is set in Christ We are robed in the righteousness of his son. We do not deserve this, but we've been given this kind of love, this kind of grace, and that's what should flow out in our lives. That's why you should ask someone today, sitting around you or in the aftertime, how they're doing. Someone that will take you out of your comfort zone. I I was thinking about the fact that in the body of Christ, isn't it amazing how you connect with people so quickly sometimes? You can be sitting next to somebody on an airplane or meet somebody who's new to town or whatever. And if you know Christ and you're both in fellowship with the Lord, you can begin to build a relationship really quickly. And you can know things in common with people. You've read the same books. You've heard the same sermons. You might have the same heroes. You you begin to connect and you can even connect with people in churches because the church community really is not that big even across the world. As you begin to unpackage your relationship to each other. And that's how it should be. I've heard it said, you know, before, look, even to me, I, you know, Jeff, I, I haven't really known you that long. And so because of that, I'm going to be, you know, a little bit more cautious with you. I've heard that phrase given to me several times. And I've thought, you know, there's, there's fairness to that. You know, you kind of have to be around for a while and relationships are, are born and then they grow and it takes time. But on the other hand... On the other hand, we're in Christ together. So there should be a measure of trust that's given automatically. A measure of respect, a measure of uh, rejoicing fellowship that you have with each other. Just because you both know the same Lord. That's how it should be. All right, number four. What do we need to fight? We need to fight against making personal judgments. That's what verse four is talking about. Have you not then made distinctions it's diacrino, it's being critical, it's, it's being judgmental. Have you not become judgmental among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word distinctions is the same word found in James 1, verse 6, that we're to ask in faith without or with no doubting. That's the same word to doubt. It's the idea that you're two-faced, you're going in two different directions. And applied here in James 2, Two, uh, four, it's the idea that you're sitting on your own throne in your heart and you're making a judgment one way or the other about somebody. You're on unstable ground about someone. Romans 14 says that we're not to judge people. We're not to judge the stronger brother or the weaker brother based on their preferences, based on their freedoms. Why? Because Romans 14.10 says one day we will stand before the only true judge and give a full account. James 4 picks up on the same thing. 
James 4.12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? It's only one judge. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help each other if we see a brother or sister stumbling spiritually, but we're never supposed to judge people. We leave that to God. He's the one who sees people's hearts. And when you leave judgment to God, then you become more open to all kinds of relationships that maybe you never thought you could ever have. You know, this lesson is one that has been in my mind all the way back to fifth grade Sunday school. This is a sin that doesn't really graduate. It just becomes more sophisticated. It's the same thing. I remember a Sunday school teacher looking at me and our class of boys and said, you know, boys, think about the person in your class at school that nobody likes. And why don't you extend yourself to that person? And as I sat there, immediately a person's face came to mind. Right? Maybe, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I was that person, you know, that was left out of things and kickball and whatever. But, but really, when we have the gospel, we have every reason to be bold and to go after people and move towards people, not move away from them. Jesus is the only rightful judge, and Jesus is incapable of rendering an evil judgment. This kind of works both ways. It's not just that wealthy people should not judge poor people. It also kind of flips on its head. If you have very little, sometimes you might feel uncomfortable approaching somebody that you know has much. Or you might, if, if you're kind of you know, a, a guy who, or a gal who likes to kind of fade into the background, maybe you don't want to reach out to people who are more prominent or more popular in their personalities. Do you know you could be doing them a disservice by holding yourself back from people? Even people that are well-to-do that you go, look, that person doesn't have any needs. Well, think about them spiritually. They do have needs. They need you. The Bible says that we are individually members of one another. And if one part of the body is not firing well or doing well or is hurt, it's affecting the whole body. So we're supposed to engage each other no matter what. This was the test of Ananias in the book of Acts chapter 9. If you turn there in Acts chapter 9, you'll know that... Peter, or Paul rather, who was Saul, was thrown down on his face on the road to Damascus. He was going to, per- to persecute the church in Acts 9, and he believed. And then the Lord spoke directly to Ananias and said, Ananias, you need to go to Saul and welcome him into the church. And Ananias is going, no, no, you don't understand. This person is a persecutor of the church. I am rightfully afraid of this person. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from verse 13 of Acts 9. I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, this, this would be like approaching, you know, the Gestapo and... World War II times or a Hitler figure. I I can't go reach out to that person. I know you've said that you've saved him, but he still scares me. Are there people like that in your life? I I know they claim the name of Christ, but he or she scares me. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone and go there towards that person. He was scared. He didn't want to be hurt. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he kind of levels the playing field. and He says, for I will show him, Saul, who was to become Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This changed Ananias' attitude. And some of the most beautiful words are in the next verse in terms of connecting with a new brother or sister in Christ. Look at this, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. Ananias was scared of this man. And then all of a sudden his heart changed. He saw, he saw Jesus as Lord. He was fixating on a heart He found a creative way to love this brother by saying, Brother Saul. Talk about a connection. Did Ananias say, man, you know, we need to kind of clock some time and build trust and see how you do. No. Brother Saul. That's it. You're in. And actually, Ananias became an advocate for Saul, who was to become Paul in the early church, breaking through barriers so this brother could be used in the church of God. All right, here's a few points of application. This is, um, for you, a homework assignment. Um, If you have not received the take-home points today, I actually put the outline on the sheet today for you. But you can take the take-home points, and you can answer these questions on your own time. I'm not going to take the time to answer them. Someone came up to me after first hour and said, Look, I'm a nurse, and I'm I'm just kind of wired this way, so where do I turn these questions into? just, just, you know, before God, you know, kind of deal with these questions. Okay. Number one, you don't turn them into me. All right. Number one, what is the root sin of partiality, bias, bigotry, snobbery, discrimination? What's the root? Think about it. Number two, why is it tempting to gravitate towards people who are like us and to distance ourselves from people who are not? Number three, What is your church reputation, our church reputation, like in the Anchorage community? It's a good question. How do people perceive us? What is our reputation? Not because we want to have some sort of self-focus, but because we want to have a reputation of grace, right? We don't want to be self-focused people. Um, Do people think of us as other-centered? Do they think of us as grace-filled People who are gracious to all newcomers, receptive. Number four, what practical steps can we take toward becoming a Jesus-based community? Let's pray. Father, I do want this to become very practical in the lives of our church, the families. I want us all to be thinking and talking about how we can bless people and how we can pursue people that take us out of our comfort zone. Lord, this is a testimony of the gospel. We either believe the gospel and believe that you are Lord, or we are denying the gospel with our actions and worse than that, our attitudes. So God, give us the grace to pursue people in love because they will know we are Christians by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up for our final close. I want to Thank you for coming this morning.
for the fellowship that I've had with you. I've appreciated your presence, and I hope that you have enjoyed yourself to each other. We have food in the back to, again, bottle up the, uh, the doorway so that you can stay around and talk and share your heart with each other and um, get to know each other on a deeper level. I always love the fellowship that we have here as a church together. We have spillable floors, and so don't be shy to drink uh, coffee and juice and eat the food and have your kids make a mess too for the glory of God. This is, this is a church family and a great environment for us to enjoy um, together. We also have information over there if you want to be a part of our church, if you want to seek membership. We've had many of you come recently for membership. That is a big deal. It's not just something where you're signing a paper. It's an identification that you want to be committed to our local church in service, in accountability, and in worshiping the Lord together. If you're seeking baptism, we'd like to hear about that and help you in that process as well. And at this point, I'd like to invite up Elder Dave Parker. Come up and close us with a word of prayer.